one of the key things we've learned is if you treat everybody the same, it sounds good, in, perhaps in theory, but in healthcare, terrible idea because we all have a different experience with healthcare and a different level of trust and the social determinants impact us uniquely. And if a plan treats you and me the same, shame on them. Our healthcare system doesn't do a good job of, of creating that more personalized experience. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. Only 20% of overall health is determined by medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, housing, food, social connections, and how to move rapidly and equitably towards whole person health in this country. The U.S. is home to more than 330 million people. Collectively, we speak 350 languages. We live in more than nine different climate zones. We are all products of where we are from, how we were raised, the foods we eat, the cultures we celebrate. Each and every one of us is completely unique. And so it's becoming more and more obvious that our cookie-cutter approach to medicine is not going to suddenly deliver whole-person health. We need a system that accounts for a person's entire self. And that's why I've invited Abner Mason to join the podcast today. Abner has spent decades working to reduce the barriers to care faced by underserved people locally, nationally, and internationally. He's the founder and CEO of Same Sky Health, a company devoted to helping health plans and providers understand and meet people's unique needs. Abner believes that as a nation, we won't be able to address equity or improve quality until we can build more trust with patients. And it's not just a matter of patients trusting the healthcare system. It's a two-way street. So the health system must also trust that patients are experts in their own health and lives. That gap is something Same Sky Health is working to address. So please welcome Abner Mason to The Other 80. I wonder if you could start by just saying your name and share with our listeners what's important to know about you. <laughs> so that's a great question. Um, so my name is Abner Mason, and what's important to know about me is uh, I guess that I'm uh, I'm really committed to uh, health equity and, and making some positive change in our healthcare system. And I'm willing to try anything and do anything <laughs> and, uh, and work with anybody to, to, to make that happen. I've seen that in action. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the topics that we're going to be digging into, the, the podcast broadly is looking at whole person health, meaning the integration of social care and medical care and all of the policies, programs, companies that are bringing that to life. And One reason I thought you'd be just a great guest is that equity underlies so much of that work and the um, need to increase health equity and be smart and pragmatic about how to do that, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And then the second side is that a lot of the innovations and work 
that's making these new programs happen are companies that have really dug into the Medicaid space. We had a great opportunity in the last episode to talk with Andy Slavitt, who obviously brings together both a deep understanding of policy, but also is actively investing in companies in the Medicaid space. So I thought this would be a nice counterpoint to that with um, your company, Same Sky Health. Really, a great deal of your business is focused on um, serving Medicaid members, but also serving the companies that support Medicaid members, the health plans and other folks. So a bunch of the questions will have to do with that kind of the investment landscape. What's it like to be a CEO in that context? Advice you might have for other other companies wanting to dig in. And then later on, we'll be talking about really the equity part of this conversation. So maybe just start with, it'd be great to hear more about Same Sky. What is the company? What is the opportunity you're really focused on? And how do you go about um, pursuing that? Sure. So uh, thanks again for uh, inviting me to, to, uh, to have this conversation. Um, so Same Sky Health, we are a health equity technology platform company. And what that really means is that we're very focused on helping our clients. And today that's primarily health plans and the Medicaid, Medicare Advantage and Exchange uh, lines of business. So it's the government lines of business that we focus on today at Same Sky Health. We are focused on helping those uh, clients, those payers to uh, to build a more trusted relationship with their members. One of the challenges that health plans have is that uh, there's just not uh, not a lot of trust between uh, healthcare members and and I would even be more general healthcare consumers and the healthcare system. Uh, so health uh, pay, health payers like the ones we work with, um, they really need to uh, build a more trusted relationship with their members because they need to get the members to do things in order for the plan to be successful. And, and I would define success as both, you know, the plan's uh, performance as a plan, but also the uh, improving health of the members. In order to be successful in both ways, uh, the plans need to get members to do things. They need to get them to engage in their health care. That means, for instance, uh, and we'll take Medicaid as an example, uh, getting a, a, a mom or a grandmom or whoever is responsible for a baby uh, to come in and get uh, the combo 10 vaccination. So between the time a baby's born and, and, t- and 24 months, someone has to bring that child in. And uh, how do you get the attention of that, of that member uh, who is low income by definition because it's Medicaid? They're, they're struggling to keep you know, uh, food on the table and a roof over their heads. Um, they're, they're, they're probably healthy. Um, and so they're like, and they don't get paid for time, time off to go into the doctor to have the baby screen, to get the combo 10 or to get that well child visit. And if that child is healthy, that parent is saying, okay, I, if I, if I go in, it's a half day or all day experience. I've got other kids. I might have to drag them along as well. I don't get paid for this. I'm working paycheck to paycheck. It's, it's a, it's a struggle. Uh, And there's a lack of trust and understanding and so that's where we come in at Same Sky Health. The plans hire us to say, hey, Same Sky Health, can you reach out to that mom, let's say, and, exp- and make sure she understands, even though her three-year-old is healthy, he's running around, you know, <laughs> like, like a crazy kid. <laughs> you know, she's like, he's healthy. He's, he, you know, he's out playing. He's doing everything. We've got to explain to her why a well-child visit is important. Even though the child appears healthy, there may be issues that if we don't catch them now, they could uh, impact that child's life forever. 
And so you can't see it, but we need to check. And so that's what the, the well child visit is for, right? So we've got to say to that mom, it's number one, what is this well child visit about? Number two, build a trusted enough relationship with her so she'll tell us why she's not likely to bring the child in. It may be she can't get time off from work. It may be she doesn't have transportation. It may be she doesn't have a primary care provider that she trusts. It may be she's got some family issues, you know, like, like th- that she can't leave some kids at home and, and, and bring this kid. Whatever it is, there's something in the way of her coming in for that well child visit. And that's our job is to engage her, build trust, and to understand what that problem is and to help navigate her into that well child visit. The, the, the interesting thing about Same Sky Health is that we're doing this at scale. We're doing it for millions of people at a time. And so that requires technology that allows us to build that more trusted relationship. And that's what uh, we built at Same Sky Health. We, we've built a technology platform that allows us to ingest a lot of data, public data, private data, claims data. We add to the team we've built that understands how different people consume healthcare. And we have a philosophy that's really based on this view that you need to understand who people are at a deeper level. And the data helps us do that, a deeper cultural level. Uh, The situations on the surface may not look that different, but they are fundamentally different at the individual level. And that's what we we focus on, understanding that and then helping navigate that that mom. uh, And so that that three-year-old comes in for a well-child visit. Mm. I'm curious, the the t- concept of trust has come up a lot in the conversations I've had. And I think the lack of trust, as you've mentioned, obviously there's going to be a, a, a tailored approach to each person, but are there any general things you've learned about how better to build trust and the ways we get that wrong today in other healthcare experience? What are your top lines about how to go about that? So the key thing that we've learned, we've been doing this for 10 years now, so we've learned a lot and we focused, you know, uh, from the very start on low income, uh, low health literacy, uh, people who are impacted by the social determinants of health. Our sweet spot was always that sort of Medicaid type uh, population. Now, today we serve everybody, you know, from lower income to higher income, we serve everybody. But our roots and our sweet spot are those low income people. And a couple of things we've learned and this is going to sound obvious, but it it hasn't been obvious. Number one thing we've learned is that people, and it goes to your point about whole person care, people are not quality measures. And we're guilty of this at Same Sky Health in our early days. Health plans typically have uh, goals that they want to achieve with the member. They want, And I'll go back to that same example. That mom bringing that child in for a well-child visit it's really important for the plan to get that child in in the 12 month period because they're, they're measured on a, on a calendar year. Uh, and the plan is is their performance, their ability to get paid, um, their ability to win new contracts, how they are, how they uh, are measured as a plan are all the different all dependent on getting that three-year-old into a into a well child screening in a 12 month period, a calendar year period. And so because of that, so much of the uh, the way that healthcare has worked up until now and still does in, in many instances, and, and again, we're guilty of this, you got to get that w- that child in. So the priority for the plan and for the partners that plans work with like us is that well child visit. But if there's no food in the refrigerator and that household, they are having food insecurity, it's just a non-starter, really, to really get that mom to prioritize a well-child visit for a three-year-old who, to her, looks healthy. And so, uh, the, so the first thing we learned is 
we need to figure out what's important in that woman's life in this instance, using that same example. What's her priority? Because what we found is that if we can understand what her priority is first and then help her with that priority, we can build trust with her that allows us maybe in month two or month three to say to her, and by the way, there's a well-child visit that needs to be done. And it really is all about treating her like she's a person, not a quality measure that needs to ch check the box. We'll, we'll get to that. And one of the things I'm just happy with our clients, our planning clients, is they're willing to give us, they're willing to be patient now. We say to them, look, I know you're hiring us to get her in for a well-child visit because that's what you need in your performance or it's a star measure or whatever the measure may be. But increasingly plans say, we will give you the, the room to build a trusted relationship because we know, and we've proven this, if we give you that room, you will get better results with the well-child visit or better results with the star ratings <laughs> because you've built trust. So I think the, one of the key things we've learned is that if you treat everybody the same, it sounds good, it, perhaps in theory, but in healthcare, terrible idea, because we all have a different experience with healthcare and a different level of trust, and the social determinants impact us uniquely. And if you, if 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 a plan treats you and me, Claudia, the same, shame on them, because we, you and I are, we're very different, and 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 the plan should. Uh, and, and the rest of the health system as well should follow this. We ought to treat people like who they are matters. And that means uh, taking the time and doesn't, it's not easy, but we have the tools to do it, to understand who that member or that healthcare consumer is. It's not about, just about plan members, it's about patients in general and people in general. Uh, we've got to treat, our healthcare system doesn't do a good job of, of creating that more personalized experience. Yeah. I, I know we both share, um, lived experience working in, in, in Africa. And I, I know when I ran a child survival program in Burkina Faso and didn't speak the local language, we hired local young women who lived in those communities and took their motorbikes around and did home visits. And the, the insights they had about people's the, the kind of real experience they had and, and the reasons that people may not eat or would eat a certain way, but not another way, to me, we're astounding. And and it takes time, like you said, it takes openness. It takes trust both directions. Like if I'm so busy trying to fill that little quality measure, I'm not actually trusting that you and I are on the same page. And it feels very undermining right. if, if you're that mom trying to figure out, you want to help your kid. Like there's no question you want to help your kid. Right. And interesting. And that whole perspective you just shared is really one that we need to keep in mind. Because sometimes there is a kind of, you know, these people are behaving badly, meaning the, the consumer, the health member, and we need to make sure that we don't take that attitude. It's kind of a judgment, like, why, why doesn't she care about her kid? Because she's not bringing him in. And we don't understand she's balancing feeding him versus a, a well-child visit that's a bit yeah. esoteric when, it, when you've got to deal with food that night. And so it's really important not only that we not judge, but that we keep judgment out of our communications because it's so easy to have that in there. So what you just said is really beautiful. And it, 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 to me, it's, it's, it, it represents the humility that we need to have as we are, as, as we are doing this work. We need to be open to learning and, and not letting you know, some biases creep in. And to see the intelligence that person has around the choices they're making as being phenomenal, but exactly. how can we help 
help them access other choices. Like sometimes. As opposed to judging. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. As opposed to judging, how do we help? <laughs> we, you know, come in with an open heart and open hands and, and, a, and a willingness to, as you said, understand people, you know, they, they're sometimes making very intelligent choices given what they think their options are. And so for, what we need to do is expand their options as opposed to judging them, expand their options. Exactly. Scooting back a little bit and thinking about the Medicaid space as a, as a company leader, as a CEO, a lot of folks are advised when they're starting companies to avoid Medicaid. It's too hard. You can't access the market. There's all these issues with it. And I'd just be curious to hear from your perspective as a company that started with Medicaid, how do you view the challenges of working in that space and how have you addressed some of those challenges in the way you work and what kinds of clients and what kind of business you go after? And then we'll get on to in a minute to what advice you would give. But like, just what do you see as the challenges and how have you gone about addressing those? Well, you described some of them. Working in healthcare in the U.S. because it's highly regulated is just hard in general, working in healthcare. And then within healthcare, um, if you choose to work in the Medicaid space, you know, I'm joking when I say this, but you are a little crazy. It is really, it's like the, it's like picking the hardest of the hard of the hard spots to do your work. Um, and so it, it, it is really difficult. Uh, unlike Medicare Advantage, for example, which is a national program. So you can, uh, you can scale your solution more quickly. And a key thing for companies and innovators and investors is this concept called scale, meaning how do you grow the business? How do you grow the revenue? If you, and so everything is about scaling. And frankly, the Medicaid market is not set up to scale because unlike, again, Medicare Advantage, which is a national program, Medicare Advantage is a state, as you know, state federal partnership, but the states get to kind of write the rules in every state. And so every state is different um, and it makes it very hard to scale your solution. And so uh, it's it's a it's one of the hardest places to choose to do uh, healthcare you know work. Uh, that's the negative, and I'm just being honest. Uh, the positive is there's no better place to work if you want to make a difference in improving our healthcare system in the U.S. Um, and if you care about uh, uh, creating a healthcare system that works for everyone in our country, regardless of what they look like, what they talk like, where they come from, or how much money they make, if that is something that's in your heart to do there's no better place to work than the Medicaid space. So I know I've just said two opposite things. It's a terrible place to work, but, but it's also the very best place to do work. Um, this is one of those instances when, when you know, it's, it, both are true. Um, and so for people who don't have a heart for this kind of work, because it's going to take longer, it's going to be harder. Um, it's going to be harder to get funding. Um, thank goodness for for uh, for uh, uh, Andy Slavitt, who you just mentioned, because I think uh, you know the the fund that he the new fund he's running, Town Hall Ventures, is doing a fantastic job of focusing in on on solutions for low income people in particular and underserved populations. And even before he started Town Hall, he was encouraging investment in that area. But the truth is, there's not nearly enough investment, even still. Um, it, I I saw an article just the other day that was in Health of Health Affairs, and it looked at the investment. I think you probably saw this in the, the investment in Medicare Advantage solutions and the investment in Medicaid solutions. I mean, a, 
a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of investment dollars is going to companies and innovators who are, who are building solutions for Medicaid versus Medicare Advantage. And the reason is there's a ton more money in Medicare Advantage per member, uh, sort of, uh, of money available to, for the plan to spend and invest in solutions on the Medicare Advantage side than the Medicaid side. So I hope I'm not being negative, but that's just you know the reality that we, that we face now. Uh, but the need is enormous on the Medicaid side. And I think the, particularly the need for innovation, for new solutions that are gonna be effective. So let's talk about scale. How do you scale in that environment where each state has a slightly different approach, even different plans? So what, what do you do? It's tough. Um, it really is tough. I have scars, many, many scars <laughs> from trying to do this. So um, it, uh, when it, we learned early on, um, and this was a mistake I made uh so, and I try to share it as much as possible so that other entrepreneurs and, and founders don't make the same mistake. Um, I was more focused on the solution we were building when I first started the company than I was on how that solution could solve the problem for uh, clients. So one of the first things that I would encourage anyone to do, and I didn't do this enough, so I've got scars from it, is you have got to go and talk to your, to who you think are going to be your ultimate customers. Because I can almost guarantee you that, that what you think they want and will buy is, is different than what they want and will buy. So it's really important to talk to that end user customer. For one thing, you may find out that you've got the wrong end user in mind, that what you're building is they're not ever going to buy it. And it may be a different customer you need to go for. But you certainly need to make sure early on that that you are talking to customers. And there's this kind of funny uh, conceit almost that founders have, and, and I had a bit of it, is that when you have an idea for a company, you think it's like, an incredible idea. And of course you do, because you're about to dedicate your life to it. And you got to convince other people. You got to hire people and convince them to join. So you got to believe in this thing. And part of that comes this view that I got to be very careful about who I talk to about it because someone's going to steal my idea. And I and yes, there is a probably, you know, a little, a tiny bit of truth in that, but not not nearly as much as people think. You should go and talk to people who are who you think are going to be your customers, and don't worry about them stealing your idea because there's a million ideas out there. There just aren't great you know entrepreneurs and teams to make to bring them to reality. What you want to make sure of is that that your idea is one that is going to actually resonate in the marketplace. So I would say really important talk to the to the end user. I didn't do that enough initially. And so um, f- fortunately, I, I figured it out before I, you know, I got totally you know, <laughs> burned. But early on, I, I was more enamored by the solution and I didn't talk enough to the, to the end user, the customer. Can you give just quickly an example of something that proved to be not, not interesting to your customer and something else yeah. that you had no idea would be interesting? So my first idea, this is for uh, for what is now Same Sky Health. We we rebranded the company. It was Conseil Sano. My first idea when I built the company was it was it was going to be a tele 
health type solution. So I was focused on Latinos. That's why the name was at the time Consejo Sano. Um, and I was trying to, I had a solution. I had made a deal with a, a company in Mexico. It was the largest telehealth company in Mexico. They were a, a global best practice. You know, McKinsey had done a study and named them a global best practice. This company based in Mexico doing telehealth in Mexico. So, you know, doing telehealth in Mexico, huge company. They wanted to get into the U.S. market. Um, and so I've made a deal with them. And I said, you know, I'll build a, a solution in the U.S. and we will use your doctors in Mexico. So you could be in the U.S., you could tap your phone and, and uh, talk to a native Spanish-speaking doctor within 10 seconds, anywhere in the U.S. And it wasn't to replace the U.S. doctor. It was the complement. A lot of Latinos, you know, a third only speak Spanish, uh, another third are uncomfortable in talking, speaking English about healthcare issues. So you've got, you know, tens of millions of people. So I had this idea, let's, let's build a solution for them. That's what it was. And it sounded like a great idea. I remember going to a large FQHC in California and the CEO set me down and he said, Abner, I love what you're doing. But if you do that, I can't get paid because the only way I get paid is if my patients come into my clinic. So think about this, a solution that is that is like four dollars versus a thousand dollars is an example. But he basically said, Abner, I can't use you because I if 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 I contract with you, even though it's better for my patients in, in this instance and it's better for society taxpayers, uh, I will go out of business because I can't get paid. And I remember sitting there across from his desk and my face, I could feel it, you know, just I was crestfallen because I had this wonderful solution. And but it wouldn't work because I hadn't figured out I hadn't talked to him in advance that he can't get paid if he uses me. And so then he said, though, and I'll thank him forever for this. I, I was just stunned. And he said, but the way you're reaching out to people to tell them about this service, the phone call to Mexico, if you could reach out to my patients and get them into my clinic because I get paid then. And I, it, I'm i having trouble getting that mom to come in for a well-child visit for all the reasons we talked about earlier. So if you could reach out to her in a culturally, linguistically appropriate way, not to get her to use a, to call a doctor in Mexico, but to come into my clinic you know, this week, we can do business. And that changed the model for Consejo Sano, what is now Same Sky Health. It was because that CEO of that FQHC was kind enough as opposed to just blowing me off, he invited me in and said, what you have built, I can't use. But if you change it a little bit, it could be a fabulous solution. And that's, that's what, that's what that's, you know, Same Sky Health has become. Maybe on that, on that same topic of, of policy, um, I've, I've often been of the view that policy creates business opportunity. And I think you've described some of those examples around equity and even around the quality measurement. Um, is there a policy, set of policy changes that are going on now that, that are creating new opportunities and what are those? Yeah. So I, I think, uh, uh, one thing that's, that I find very exciting, um, is, uh, I, I, I think we are at a point in the country and with our healthcare system and it's a good thing. It should have happened a long time ago, but it didn't. We have always known that our system wasn't, wasn't really equitable and that there were a lot of health disparities. Uh, and we've known it, we've talked about it for decades and decades, but we really didn't take the steps to do something about it. I believe, and you know, I could be proven wrong here, but I hope not that we are at the, at the start of our country really starting to, to uh, make progress on, on addressing those, uh, those disparities, uh, at least potentially, and, and creating a more equitable healthcare system. And it's a th- it, to me, it's like a three-phase process. The first phase is collecting data, particularly race, ethnicity, and language data. 
no, you know it, but we don't have that data for for healthcare consumers, for members, for patients across the country. Race, ethnicity, language. It's amazing. The such low percentage health plans, for instance, have uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. It's almost non-existent in terms of that data being collected across the country. And then social determinants of health data. You know, what is does a person have food insecurity? Um, do they have housing insecurity? We don't have that data. We've never collected it in it either at all or certainly in any consistent way. Um, and I, and yet we know, for instance, that that a person's health is like 80 percent the the SDOH related stuff, the non-clinical stuff versus what happens in, a, in an actual clinical setting. So all of that thinking and knowledge and experience is coming together now. And I think we I think I'm hoping that r- regulators at the federal and the state level have gotten together with key you know accreditation organizations like NCQA. And I just think it's a great moment. Health plans across the country. Are, be, are slowly but surely being required to collect this data, starting with race and ethnicity and soon sexual orientation, gender identity, um, as well as STOH data. <clears throat> health systems are going to be required to, to collect it. They call it health-related social needs. Um, if all across the healthcare system, we're starting to collect this data now. That's phase one collecting. Phase two is requiring all the healthcare stakeholders to report quality measures stratified by these, 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 these demographics. I mean, think about this. For the first time in our nation's history, we're going to be able to, for example, to track breast cancer across ethnic groups across time. We know there are disparities that exist, but they are, we have, we can't put our, there are no metrics around them. So the second phase of this effort is going to be stratifying, you know, quality measures and really being able to over time measure disparities. And step one, collecting. Step two, reporting with the stratified is going to create the opportunity, which is step three, which is once we know where those disparities are, it's going to create an enormous need for new solutions. Yes, some old solutions can be applied to those disparities, but I'm betting, I think that there's going to be a need for new solutions as we are able to really understand what's going on with these communities. So to your question, that's to me, that's an example of policy leading to the need for new solutions. Because uh, if, if the old solutions, if, 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 if we didn't need new solutions and the old solutions worked, we wouldn't have the disparities that we have today. So clearly there is a need for better approaches, particularly approaches that use technology. So that's one example to me of policy finally you know, getting, getting aligned correctly and creating the need for new solutions. And it's interesting the the what we were talking about earlier around trust very much comes to bear on this because what I've heard a lot from plans and providers are they say, well, we ask those questions. Well, two things happen. One, they ask the question, but the person doesn't want to answer because they don't trust the information will be used in a in an appropriate way. Or I've heard this a lot, providers never ask because they don't feel comfortable asking. <laughs> and so in a trusted relationship, like you're able to create with a member, you have a person who's trained to ask these somewhat sensitive questions in a way that's super supportive, co- embedded in a relationship where there've been multiple plays of trust that have built over time. So I, I've no just, question. I've heard this a lot though. A lot of times those, those fields are blank because the question was never asked. We live in the country 
that we have. We can't, you know, go back and redo it, right? So we're in 2023, and America is as it, as it is. There has been a lot of, uh, of of distrust, and people are uncomfortable talking about certain topics or even asking the question. And I get it. It's like a chicken and egg. You need to know more about people to create a more personalized relationship that itself can build trust. But if you don't have the trust, how do you get the person to tell you the stuff that you want them to tell you uh, so that you can build the trust? It is just chicken and egg. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's, 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 it's simple, but we are starting to figure out to sort of crack that code at Same Sky Health. We're getting people to tell us. Um, and a lot of it has to do with how you engage people, you know, what you tell them up front. But with all of that said, hopefully I'm coming across as positive because I do think this change that I've described of, of really getting serious about, about uh, collecting data that's going to allow us to uncover this is a good thing for our country. I do want to, ju- I, I have to be honest, there is a bad thing that I'm seeing and hearing in the country. And that is, for example, um, uh, uh, folks who are trans or, uh, uh, or even drag queens now are becoming this target of, of, uh, of they're becoming a target for, for, for politicians. Some states have even said, you know, they're not going to, they're going to try to not cover with their Medicaid program or state funds um, transition uh, for trans people. Um, this, this idea of p- taking one group in society and starting to target them, that's not, it, it has a really negative effect on people being willing to be open about, for instance, their sexual orientation and gender identity. If you think giving your giving that information is going to put you on a list that you're not going to you're going to be sort of, you know, uh, uh, targeted, you're not going to provide that information. So that's a negative thing that's happening now. And I think, you know, those of us who, who disagree with that need to lift our voices now um, and say in, in, that we it's wrong and we are going to you know, fight it and we're going to not uh, to the extent we, we have power and influence. And I'm looking at health plans here <laughs> and their leadership and they need to make clear that that's not who they are and that's not what they're going to do. But the rest of us have voices. You know, we all have a voice. It's not like you have to be governor to have a voice. We all do in different ways. We just need to, you know, make our voices heard. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Speaking of having a voice and making it heard, I know you've been talking a lot. Um, you're a very effective communicator and have really raised up this issue of the Medicaid redeterminations and the impact that it may have on poor people. And many people are aware of this, but not everyone is. So I wondered if you could just give us kind of an overview of what's at stake here with um, the upcoming redeterminations in April. And what do you think needs to be done to ensure that we don't end up with huge losses of insurance? Yeah. So a, a good, you know, the, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic was horrible, but one of the good things that happened is that, you know, uh, uh, regulators stepped up and said, Hey, we need to make it easier for people during this COVID period um, to make sure that they, for instance, can keep their health insurance. Well, now the public health emergency is coming to an end. And in, the, and in that period, a lot of people lost their jobs and became eligible for Medicaid. So you had the roles increase and people who were on the roles didn't go through redetermination. Well, starting in April, you know, the, 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 that public health emergency is officially over and states, all 50 of them plus the territories, have to go through a process with the Medicaid members in their state to get them redetermined. It's it's a it's never happened before where you know people had to do this kind of effort. Depending on who you listen who you who you listen to, and there are a lot of experts in the field. Fifteen million uh, people 
uh, are potentially could lose their their Medicaid, uh, their their health insurance coverage, either because uh, they don't know they have to go through this process and they and 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 it'll be hard to communicate with them to to get them through it, or uh, they might not qualify for Medicaid, but they could qualify for the exchange, but they don't know it, um, or maybe they got a job, but the job doesn't pay insurance. It's a, it's a small employer, and so that would make them qualify for the exchange. So the, there's this uh, huge millions and millions of people, up to 15 million, who have to go through this process. And if and if history is any guide, people are saying, you know, the experts are saying you could see, you know, five six million people lose their insurance coverage. Uh, health insurance coverage unnecessarily. They qualify, but they couldn't be reached. And add to that a recent study that uh, Robert Wood Johnson came out with just foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, just about two weeks ago. 62% of folks on Medicaid don't know they have to go through this process. 62%. So, so, so some, so uh, to, to the latter part of your question, we need the states and the health plans to partner in a way they've like they perhaps never done in the past. Um, and they, we need to figure out a way to reach out to people. If two thirds don't even know they need to go through this, we are about to, you know, have a horrible problem. And think about this. We've the, the, if, if we allow the end of the public health emergency to create another emergency for low income Medicaid folks, shame on us, right? We, we, we've had time, we know it's coming. And so we need to put in step in, in place the, the steps uh, to make sure that the people know they need to go through this process, and there's an easy way, uh, uh, what I'd call a 2023 method, not a 1970 method. <laughs> uh, we need to. It needs to be flexible. It needs to <clears throat> take into account people who are comfortable, you know, doing things online or via their phone. Also, we've got to find some other avenues for people who are just not comfortable with that or don't have, you know, don't have that ability. Um, so we we are focused on it at Same Sky Health. Uh, I'm fearful that states and plans aren't moving quickly enough mm. to put in place the, the procedures to get us through this. What do you, I would think they would both be very motivated. What do you think those barriers are to them stepping up? Just that it takes time to. I think it yeah. takes time. Mm. I think that, that um, many of them are, are perhaps not aware of how much change ha- there's been in, in that population. So for instance, during the pandemic, a lot of, low-income people moved. Either they got foreclosed to hunt, a huge foreclosure crisis, which is continuing, or they just couldn't afford their, their place because of, of, of uh, they, they lost jobs and income. And they didn't update their, their, their uh, uh, address information. So something as little, uh, not little, as important as, but as simple as address information is, is getting in the way. Now, uh, one good piece of news, and we also should highlight that the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission recently issued a, a declaratory uh, a regulation or, or guidance that health plans can use text messaging to connect with their members for only for the purposes of redetermination. Now, that is a big step forward. That's like that's what I call a, 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 a big step toward getting into 2023 from you know doing things the old way. Now, unfortunately, they've limited it to redetermination, but we should be grateful for that. That you know, when our government does something right, we should really be grateful. So good for HHS and good for CMS and good for FCC for doing that. It's a big step forward, but that is an example of plans didn't have that capability until just you know a, a month or so ago when the FCC ruled that they could do it they weren't planning to use text messaging because they weren't allowed to many of them most I would say now they can free determination so that's a good step forward okay all right to wrap up 
the first question is, what's a leadership lesson you've learned the hard way? Uh, I'd say asking for help. Uh, part of there's this weird balance between when you're a leader uh, between showing leadership and giving the sense that you know what you're doing <laughs> because people expect leaders to, to know what they're doing. Um, but recognizing that you don't know everything and you sometimes don't have the, the, the right answer. And so it's really important to, to, uh, to first accept that you're going to ask, you're going to need help and be willing to ask for help. And then the second part of that question is you got to know who to ask. Uh, not everybody is, uh, is the right person to be asking for advice. It, you really got to curate your your network of, and 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 put, find people that you uh, have a you can have a relationship with that you trust, but who know what they're talking about, so that when you you can feel confident of of the advice that you're getting. But asking is you got to you got to be willing. It, does, it doesn't matter how smart the people around you are if you don't ask. It's no good to you. So you got to be sort of humble enough to recognize you don't have all the answers. You can't. And it's okay. It, no, I don't know anybody who has all the answers. So you got to ask for help. It is, a, I think, as a recent CEO, I know that so much of our energy is spent building confidence and yeah. being optimistic about the future. And it sometimes feels like asking the question is admitting we don't know those answers that we're trying to get everyone still around the campfire. And I'm reading a book about Winston Churchill that's actually very relevant where he would say like, things are dire and this is our moment in time, you know, and sort of being able to like be frank about the reality of the situation because nobody wants to feel like they're hearing something that's not true. But at the same time, reminding people of the importance of the mission and the possibility of being successful, even if right. we haven't gotten there yet. Exactly right. It means having good sleep and good food and good rest and, and all those things become really important because I, I don't know about you, but I find that if I have those things, being able to respond with that openness is a lot easier. Agreed. hundred percent. Okay. Final question. Uh, what's a question you wish I had asked and, <laughs> and what would have been your answer? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, Maybe you know what the what what I think the future looks like for healthcare um, in in say five years in in the U.S. And, and my answer, you know, today, <laughs> I'm optimistic. I think for the reasons we talked about, I think that we're making headway. People are are leaning into the steps that we need to take to create a more equitable healthcare system. So, uh, I'm very optimistic um, about where we're headed. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining. And I hope our paths yes. cross again very soon. Absolutely. You're probably on the uh, conference schedule right now, I can imagine. Yes. And I hope yes. it's going well. <laughs> very <Yeah>. much so. <laughs> a big thank you to Abner Mason for sharing the important work he's doing, building a healthier and more equitable world. I left this conversation thinking a lot about data. To understand someone's whole self, we need a lot of facts, their race, their past trauma, and whether they have enough food and safe housing. But for too many people, those facts have delivered harm, not help in the past. How can we ensure that the data we are collecting will help people not create discrimination and harm? That's a big question we will be exploring in future episodes. 
This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. I've included resources in the show notes that you might find interesting, including a case study on how Abner's company helped increase vaccine equity in California. There is more information on my background, the podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.